Good morning, church. Happy Sabbath. Uh, before we get started, I'd just like to take a brief moment here and offer a quick word of prayer. Yahweh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to come together on your Sabbath. Thank you for a new year around the corner, uh, a chance to start over, to start fresh. God, I ask that you be with us today as we study your word, as we um, listen to what you have for us to know today. Again, I ask for your blessing and your Holy Spirit among us today. In your name, amen. Our new year is kind of weirdly timed, isn't it? I mean, it is to me. Uh, in the ancient world, New Year's would fall either on the spring equinox or the autumn equinox. Makes sense, change of season, midway between the, the two solstices. Uh, but for us, we decide to start New Year randomly on a Tuesday in the middle of winter. Make more sense if it was like on December 21st or 22nd around the solstice, but whatever. It is what it is. Our New Year just kind of randomly starts when it starts. And yet, even though there's no celestial event that triggers the new year for us, mentally, it means a lot. It's like we get to start over again. We get a, a hit the reset button. It's almost, for me, sometimes the new year is kind of like when I turn my phone off to restart it, just to speed it up, to kind of reset the system. That's what the new year feels like, at least for me doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when I stop and really think about it, so I generally try not to stop and think about it too much and just accept the, uh, the sense of newness that comes with the new year. In thinking uh, the last few weeks after uh, Elvis asked me to, to speak today about you know, preaching so close to the new year and new starts, new beginnings, it made me think about the beginning, the beginning at the book of beginnings in Genesis 1 and the story of creation, and how all of this came to be, how all of this got started. And it, seemed to me, it struck me that we actually don't seem to spend a lot of time really thinking about creation. At least in my circles, when the topic of creation comes up, usually we start talking about apologetics, you know, evolution versus creation. You know, do we come because God formed us from the dust of the earth or because we evolved from an amoeba? Yet, that's not really the point of the story. That's not really what Genesis 1 is about. And I, it seems to me that we do the story and the Word of God a disservice when we come to Genesis 1 and we immediately gravitate towards these questions of apologetics and science versus religion, if they're at all at odds with each other. I'm not going to say that questions of origins are not important. They do. They are, and they do have a place. But today, I want to set aside Charles Darwin or Ken Ham, and I want to really focus on the text. What does it mean when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? One of the greatest and most insightful works of philosophy and thinking known to man is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In this book, there's a particular story of a group of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings that spend most of their existence arguing over the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And so, to solve the question, because they got tired of arguing over it, 
they built this special supercomputer, Deep Thought, that would give them the answer to life, the universe, and everything. So Deep Thought thinks about it for seven and a half million years. And when they come back seven and a half million years later to get the answer from Deep Thought, she warns them that while she does have an answer, they're not going to like it very much. They say, don't care. We got to know, what is the answer to the ultimate question to life, the universe, and everything? And Deep Thought says, you're really not going to like it. The answer is 42. The answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. Naturally, these hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings are livid. 42 doesn't make any sense. What are they supposed to do with that? But Deep Thought points out that they actually never asked a question. They have an answer, but it doesn't make any sense because they don't know what the question is. Asking for life, the answer to life, the universe, and everything is not actually asking a question. 42 can mean almost anything. It can be the answer to a dozen different questions. What's six times seven? What number did Jackie Robinson wear? 42. The answer only makes sense, has only has meaning and significance if you know what the question is. When it comes to reading the Bible, how often do we do the same thing? We come to the Bible like those beings came to deep thought and say, give us the answer, without actually asking a question. Or even considering, what is the question the Bible is actually answering? Is the Bible really asking the same questions and therefore answering the same questions that we may be asking or we think are important. And so one of the most important things to do when we come to the Bible is to make sure we know what the question being asked is, because only then will the answer make sense. When we come to Genesis 1, is the Bible really answering the question of what are we made of? What did we, where did we come from? Or perhaps is the Bible asking and answering different questions, looking at different perspectives? One of the ways we know, obviously besides starting off with prayer, of course, and asking for the Holy Spirit when we approach the text, is when it comes to the Bible, ask yourself a few of these questions before you read anything. These are questions I ask to put, place myself in the context of the Bible to think, what is the Bible actually answering here? What question is it answering? Who wrote it, as far as we can tell? Who read it? When was it written? What was happening when it was written? Why is it here, whatever it is? Why is the story of creation here? Why is the story of Jephthah's daughter in the Bible? You see, the Bible doesn't tell us everything. There are plenty of things we know, certainly from history of even of Israel, that the Bible never mentions. And yet there are plenty of things it does mention. So why did the Bible include this story but leave that one out? Why did the Bible include this detail but not that one? It's all here for a reason. It's all answering a question. We just need to understand what the question is. And so what we do is we, as best as possible, put ourselves in the shoes and sandals of those who first read and wrote the Bible. Put ourselves in their context. 
One of my favorite interpretation dictums is that the Bible was written for us, meaning its authority, its messages, its meaning is universal for all people in all places and all times. But it was not written to us. Meaning when the people who wrote the Bible put pen to paper or parchment, they were not thinking of you and I. They were not addressing you and I. They were specific individuals writing in specific places at specific times to specific people addressing specific situations and questions. And so if we want to know what that universal for us is, we've got to ask ourselves and find out what is that specific situation? What is it they were addressing? So let's think about Genesis 1. As far as we can tell, there is some debate, but for the most, but for the most part, we can pretty confidently say, I think, that Genesis was written by Moses shortly after the Exodus during the wanderings of Egypt, or during the wanderings in the wilderness. Well, that helps us understand who wrote it, Moses, who it was written to, the Israelites just freed from slavery, and it helps us understand when it was written and about what was going on around them. So why creation? Why start there? Put yourself in the shoes, or sandals rather, of an Israelite just freed from slavery. You're, in the, you're walking around the desert, it's kind of a unique experience for you. After all, your life up to this point, up to maybe a few months or a few years ago, has been defined by being a slave. Now you're not. What does it mean to be free? I don't know. Now, as a slave, growing up perhaps as a child, you probably heard your grandparents or great-grandparents tell stories of uh, El Shaddai or Elohim the God that was uh, working with your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I mean, look, after generations of oppression, slavery, and genocide, these stories are at best, what, fuzzy memories you had maybe as a little kid? All you know is you were a slave in Egypt. It was miserable. This dude Moses shows up, claiming to be speaking for this God, Yahweh, you'd never heard of before some really freaky stuff happens, and now you're in the desert a free man or woman. I don't know about you, but I'd have some serious existential questions. Who am I? Who's Yahweh that I'm following around? What does it mean to be an Israelite? Who are the Israelites? What are we doing here? So it is in this context that Moses writes Genesis. Genesis is really kind of the Bible's prologue. It's its introduction. The Bible, many uh, believe, really starts with Exodus. It's the you are here dot for the Israelites because that's the story that Moses was writing down as it was happening. Everything in Genesis, from creation to the fall to the flood to the patriarchal stories, it's all leading up to the Exodus. It's all pointing towards the Exodus. I imagine that it kind of started like this, with Moses getting bombarded with all these existential questions of who am I, what's going on, who's Yahweh? He's like, all right, let, let me tell you about Joseph, because uh, that's how we got in Egypt. Except to tell you about Joseph, and that makes sense, I need to tell you about Jacob. He's like, probably need to tell you about Isaac. And then Abraham. You know what? Forget it. Let's just start at the very, very beginning and go from there. Thus, Genesis was written. 
So we come to Genesis 1. These are the questions that Genesis is asking. Who is Yahweh? Who am I? What is my point? What is my purpose? These aren't questions of evolution versus creation. These aren't questions of uh, material origins. It's what does the universe look like? How does this make any kind of sense? And where do I fit in in all of this? And so we read and we start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the word for create there is the Hebrew word bara. It's a unique word, and it only occurs a handful of times in the uh, Old Testament. Probably the most unique thing about it is it ever only takes one subject, God. God is the only one who ever baras anything. The object of the verb is usually people. So usually it's God, bara, human beings or individuals. And typically it's about putting people in particular positions or uh, places in society. God also bras the sky, bras the earth, as we obviously just, just read. For the most part, when God baras something, it's not talking about him physically putting something together. He's about putting it, putting it in its place, giving it identity, purpose, and function. Another way, or perhaps even a more accurate way, of reading Genesis 1-1 would be to say, in the beginning, God ordered the heavens and the earth. Order is one of the most important central concepts in the ancient mind. Everything in existence, they divide into two point, into two categories, order and chaos. Order was good. You wanted order. You wanted to be part of order. Chaos was bad. You wanted to avoid that. And so how they framed Everything in their societies, in their concept of the universe, was based around these, these, uh, these two ideas of order and chaos. You lived in a city. That was good. Cities were order. That's why they built walls. Not just for military protection, but walls were also there to delineate between the order of the city and the chaos of the wilderness. Those who farmed were part of the ordered universe. They had nice, neat rows for orchards or vineyards or, or wheat or barley or whatever they were growing. They had dug canals. It was order. Shepherds, however, who lived out in the wilderness tending sheep or goats or whatever, they were part of the chaos. So one of the great tensions you see in the ancient world is this tension between those who farmed and those who were shepherds. It's why, by the way, the Egyptians... We're at the end of Genesis, when Joseph's brothers come down, he tells his brothers, say that you're shepherds because the Egyptians don't like shepherds and they'll just send you off and you won't have to worry about mixing with the Egyptians too much. Egyptians don't like shepherds because they're not part of the order. Egyptians, particularly the pharaohs, were obsessed with preserving ma'at, or order, or things as they're supposed to be. Those who lived in Egypt, who were part of Egypt's very rigid social structure, good, part of order. Those who lived outside in what was called the red lands, for the desert sands, they were part of chaos. They were servants of Set, the god of chaos. Order, chaos. Everything in the universe was about order versus chaos. It's why the kings of Assyria, why the kings of Babylon, why uh, they build canals. 
because they're trying to increase agriculture. Therefore, increase order. It's why they went out conquering. Same thing with the Egyptian pharaohs. They went out to conquer, to expand order, and to beat back chaos. The ultimate symbol of chaos was, of course, the sea. In the beginning, God ordered the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was wild and waste, formless, or formless and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep. The earth is chaos. It is outside in the beginning. It is outside order. There is no order. There is no structure it's just, ugh. it is the waters of the deep. In the ancient construction of the universe, if we, asked, if we brought an ancient person up today and asked them to draw us a picture of what, well, if we asked them what the solar system looked like, they would look at us like we were nuts. But if we asked them to draw a picture of what the world looked like, they would draw something like this, with a big dome up here, and at the top, that's heaven. It's where the gods live. Then we have this kind of earth, flattish earth down here. Well, that's where man dwells. And then underneath it is the underworld, where the dead dwell. And around the earth is the primeval waters of the deep. In every creation story in the ancient Near East, it always starts in the deep. Over these primeval, this primeval ocean of chaos. In Egypt, for example, the god Amun, who becomes later Amun-Ra, he comes up out of this primordial sea and stands on this little tiny hill in the middle of it, and then he begins to create. He separates water from water. He makes the sky, the goddess Nut. He creates the other gods. He puts the stars in the sky, glass on the fields, so on and so forth. And as he creates these other gods, they start creating things. They start ordering the universe about until eventually you have man created and there you go. And of course, being an Egyptian story, everything centers around Egypt and the Nile. Similarly, in the much more violent Mesopotamian traditions, uh, since the Mesopotamians are kind of like the Germans when it comes to fairy tales, everything is brutal and gruesome, um, Theirs, their creation story is a battle against chaos, and chaos is personified as Tiamat, this primordial, primordial sea goddess who takes the form of a dragon, or a sea dragon specifically. And Marduk slays Tiamat in this war, and he splits her in half. The bottom is the sea, or the, is the earth, the top is the sky. Okay. But none of you knew that when you were looked up at the sky, you were actually looking at the insides of a dead goddess. The tail becomes the Milky Way. He uses her, sprinkles her blood to become the stars. Entrails become the Euphrates and Tigris. And uh, that's the uh, cleaned up version of the story. Um, it's, again, very, very gruesome. The Germans would probably love it. Um, but again, it's this idea of starting with the sea, Tiamat which is also related to the word tohum in Hebrew, which is the word for the deep. All creation starts at the, deep, the waters 
of chaos. And then from there, all creation stories are about separating, putting things into boxes, giving things names, identity, function, purpose. You see, for the ancient mind, something did not exist because it physically, materially existed. If I had a lump of clay that I had formed into something, it wasn't, still wasn't anything until I called it a lamp and put oil in it. I, when I, but when I do that, I'm giving it a function. I'm giving it an identity. Then it exists. This is why names are so important. This is why they're always asking, what's your name? What's your name? In Genesis 32, Jacob is asked by the angel of Yahweh, what is your name? And it's why it's so important that the angel of Yahweh changes Jacob's name to Israel. Yahweh himself changes Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, Sarah to Sar uh, Sarai to Sarah. These subtle changes change the identity from great father to father of many nations, from deceiver to he who has struggled with God. Something does not exist until it has a name, until it has an identity, a function, a purpose. And so, in all the creation stories, you have the gods going about separating things into boxes and then giving them identity, purpose, function. The story of creation in Genesis 1 is the same. Think about it. In the beginning, God ordered the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and a void, wild and waste. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. It starts in the faceless, featureless, monolithic waters of chaos. And then God says, let there be light. What did God create on the first day? Nope, not light. He says, let there be light. But instead of calling the light light, what does he call it? Day. And the dark he calls night. God separates light and dark. Day and night. God creates time on the first day. Separating, dividing, naming, identifying. God is bringing order from chaos. On day two, he separates the waters from the waters. And that space between he calls the sky. Separating, dividing, naming, identifying. Order from chaos. Day three, land and sea. The vegetation. It's not just let there be grass. It's let there be trees that bear fruit and seeds to bear fruit, to bear more trees after them. Vegetables of the field to bear fruit with seeds to bear fruit after them. The grass of the field to do the same. God is separating even among the vegetation, naming, identifying, separating, dividing, order from chaos. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars. The sun to govern the day the moon to govern the night, the moon to give us the months, the stars to help us understand the seasons. Naming, dividing, separating, identifying, order from chaos. Day five and six, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. All the animals are now separated, identified, specified. Order from chaos. And the very end, 
God says, it is very good. God starts on day one with this formless and void, wild and waste. And he ends on day six with this very good, unique, identified world. A world where everything is unique and special. Everything has a place, a purpose, a function, an existence. This idea of order, this is what the Hebrew word shalom really refers to. This idea of very good. Everything as it should be. We often translate it or think of it when, of shalom as peace. But it doesn't just mean the lack of violence. It means everything is as it is supposed to be. This is what God created. This is what God put together. What he ordered was he took, again, the wild and waste and made it very good. He took the formless and void and made it shalom. Everything as it is supposed to be. So let's take a step back now in time. We're ancient Israelites. We're hiking through the desert. We're trying to figure out who we are, what we are, and we're trying to figure out who Yahweh is. And Moses tells us this story. We are in the wild and waste. We are living in the place of chaos. We are far from the cities. We are far from the cultivated lands. We're just hanging out in the desert. And we are told that we are now serving a God who took the wild and waste and made it very good. He made it orderly. He made it right. We are formless and void. We don't know what it means to be an Israelite. We don't know what it means to be free, even. Our entire existence has been defined by us being slaves. Now we're just here. We are this formless and void mass of people. But we are now told that we are serving a God who took the formless and void and made it shalom. Yeah, we have a lot of things to figure out, but it's okay. It's all right. We serve a God who is the one who takes formless and void, who takes wild and waste and creates it into something, into something real, something that exists, something that is very good, something that is as it should be. This is, this, this is the question that Genesis 1 answers. But it doesn't stop there. It tells us who God is. It tells us what he is and what he does. But it also tells us who we are and what we are meant to be. One of the key differences, and there are many, many differences between Genesis 1 and the other creation myths. For example, God creates alone. Other myths, the gods are creating other gods and they're all creating together. There's no violence in Genesis 1. There's no battle. It's just God speaks and it is. But probably the most stark difference between Genesis 1 and any other creation account is that in the rest of the, created, the other creation stories, humans are an afterthought. They're a footnote. The whole point is about how the gods came into being and who the gods are and what they are. But in Genesis 1, we are the focal point. We are the crown jewel of creation. We are why God is creating this whole place to begin with, why he is ordering it. 
Genesis 1 is fundamental to our understanding of who and what we are. God says, let us make man in our image. And so he made them in his image, male and female, he made them. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, it was actually a fairly common idea, particularly for kings, to be images of God. Now, obviously, in Egypt, kings were the physical incarnation of the god Horus. But even in Mesopotamia, kings were considered the image of God. For example, for in Assyria, if you looked up an image of the god Asher, the head of the Assyrian pantheon for whom the nation and people are named, and then you looked up a picture of, uh, say, Sargon II, one of the kings of Assyria, you would find they looked almost identical. You'd think they were twins. Incidentally, Sargon also looks exactly like Sennacherib, his son, who looks exactly like Esarhaddon, his son, who looks like exactly like Ashurbanipal, his son. Everybody looks the same. Now, unless they perfected the art of cloning in ancient Assyria, these images are about something other than physical representation. The point isn't that you look exactly like this person. In fact, I would be very surprised if Sargon or any of his, these kings actually looked fairly close to the depicted images that we see of them in carvings and statues. Because the idea was you weren't in ancient art, was not to physically accurately represent what somebody or something looked like, like we do now. It was about accurately representing intangible abstract attributes that a person was supposed to have. The king was supposed to be the image of the god. So he looks like the image of the god, meaning he carries the god's attributes. He carries his strength, his power, his wisdom, his martial skill, his, uh, his passions, his ideas, his mission, and his authority. The king has authority to go out conquering the universe because he is in the image of God, and therefore, as the image of the god Asher, the Assyrian king has, carries Asher's authority, he carries his strength to do it, and he carries the mission of Asher to continue creation, to continue bringing order to chaos. Same thing with the Egyptian pharaohs. As the incarnation of Horus, they carry Horus's authority and his mission, which justifies them going out and conquering whoever and slaughtering whoever, because that is part of the mission of bringing order to chaos. It's why they build their cities. It's why they build their canals. It's why they do everything they do is because they are in the image of the God, and therefore they carry the God's rep, uh, authority, the God's attributes, the God's power, all of it. Now, in Assyria, it doesn't mean that they are the God, but they do carry, but you treat them almost as if they were, similar to how you would treat an ambassador as speaking for a nation. But this is where the Bible turns this idea on its head. If we think about it, God says we create them in your image. Now, therefore, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all that moves upon the earth. Filling the earth, subduing the earth, exercising dominion over the earth. 
It's the same mandate that these Assyrian kings had. Spread out. Bring order to chaos wherever you find it. You see, God finished creation as very good and shalom. But that didn't necessarily mean it was totally done. Instead, God turned over the creation of the rest of the world to us. He started off with Adam and Eve, and he said, all right, go from here. Carry on my mission. Carry on my mandate to fill the earth, to subdue it, and bring order to it through your dominion. It's the same orders. But what God does that's so special, so unique, is that in every other culture, this was the prerogative of the kings alone. The kings were made in the image of God, not the people. But God says, no, no, no. Everybody, all of you, are made in my image. You have my authority. You have my mission. You have that responsibility to go out, bring shalom, bring order wherever you are. So as an ancient Israelite walking through the desert, trying to figure out what does it mean for me to be an Israelite? What does it mean that I am the servant of this God, Yahweh? And I am told that I am made in his image. It means that I have God's mission. I have God's responsibility to go out and to bring shalom wherever I am. That is what it means that I am made in the image of God. Of course, it does not mean I am equal to God. Absolutely not. But it does mean I carry that responsibility. And just because humans screwed it up and sinned in the fall and sin has come in to reintroduce chaos to this world, to slowly tear it apart, unravel it, that makes that mission of being in the image of God all the more important because chaos is everywhere around us. This is what the sto- these are the questions Genesis 1 is answering. It tells us what the ideal was, what God was going for. He was going for this world of order, this shalom, this very goodness. And that tells us what we're trying to get back to. And it tells us who we are and what we're about as members of the human race. We carry the image of God, which means what God did at creation, bringing order from chaos, making his place very good, is what we are to do in our own way, wherever we are. We are to bring order from chaos. We are to bring shalom to whoever we meet, whatever we do. I don't know where any of you guys are. Maybe some of you feel like this last year has left you like the earth before God got to it. Formless and void, wild and waste. You're drowning in chaos. Never forget who God is, who took the formless and void, the wild and waste, and made it very good. And understand that he will, in his own time, in his own way, do that for you. Maybe you're feeling pointless and useless. 
not sure what's going on, who you are, what your purpose is, maybe you basically feel like you don't even exist, really. You don't have an identity. You don't have an existence. Remember what God is telling you he made you to be. You bear his image. You bear his responsibility. You have the ultimate purpose to bring shalom wherever you are. So as we head to this new year, this blank slate, let us meditate on what it means that in the beginning God ordered the heavens and the earth. Let us meditate on what it means that God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let us take this opportunity as a blank slate to reorder our lives and to let God order our lives from chaos to shalom.